Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is singer-songwriter and film composer Steph Copeland. Steph started off as a singer-songwriter and still dabbles in it occasionally when she has time, but now is a basically full-time film composer, often working in horror and thriller genres. Some of her latest films include The Retreat, The Oak Room, and Vicious Fun for which she does a pretty cool and exciting synth score, which I really enjoyed and hopefully gets a standalone release soon. In addition, Steph recently released a track called Gaslight, which is kind of a dark indie pop feel, and it's a pretty cool track, and I recommend checking it out, especially if that's your style. And especially watch the music video, it's very abstract and interpretive. You can check out Steph's stuff on all streaming services, or go straight to her website or her Bandcamp, and you can find her on all social as well. And of course, you can do the same for me. I hope you enjoy this one. Let's dive in. Steph, I'm so glad you could join me today. How have you been? Uh, great. Thanks for very much for having me. Yeah, of course. So I know that, at least on paper, 2020, 2019, 2021 has looked pretty busy for you from a film composing perspective. Yes, definitely. Um... We did The Oak Room in 2019, Vicious Fun in 2020, and The Retreat in 2021, as well as some solo projects in there. We uh, released a single and uh, shot a music video, and yeah, it's been it's been amazing. I'm probably leaving stuff out. I, I did more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you may have left things out, but at least you, like everything you mentioned are things that I've watched or listened to, so yeah, I'm, I'm uh, not too far behind the eight ball on this. So I always find it interesting when composers have that duality of both composing for film and other media, but then also having their solo work as well. So how do you balance those? And what was the trajectory of those two? You know, I started as a singer-songwriter and then got into electronic music production, probably at around the age of 18, and uh, started to record myself and produce little indie EPs and, and albums and things like that and uh, was performing on stage. And later on, I, I did my very first film score for Antisocial, which was with Black Fawn Films. And it was an electronic score, which was perfect because that's where I was coming from. And all of my songwriting was tended to be quite cinematic and maybe even a little darker leaning, influenced by Portishead and Nine Inch Nails and Massive Attack and anything that was little, just a little darker leaning. And so, yeah, it was a really good fit. And so, that was my parlay into film scoring and it was well received. And so Black Fawn Films ended up getting an eight picture deal to do more horror. And I was attached, not, not attached to the deal, but like I was who they were working with at the time. So I, I went along for the ride for the most part, having scored um, seven of the eight. Wow. So then how did you first get involved in scoring antisocial? I mean, was it just kind of a like a fluke or was that something that you'd always had an interest in in the back of your mind? I definitely always thought about the idea of making music for for cinema but I never really knew how to break into that and honestly this opportunity came along where I played some demos that I had just been singing and noodling with for my next EP for the director Cody Callahan and it was like this mixture of like vocal kind of aria style stuff mixed with electronic beats and synthesizers and that was just the direction 
And so he uh, he gave me a shot. And this was a micro budget film. So it was a lot, a lot of work for basically an honorarium. But that's where we were at in the filmmaking process. Like, I believe it was his first feature film he was directing, written and directed. And so I just had got thrown into the deep end, really. And I had to catch up. I had a lot to learn. I I had never done anything like that. <laughs> I bet. So, I mean, what were what were some of like the difficult parts jumping into scoring a film the first time? Or what were some of the things that now looking back after scoring quite a few features, you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did this or I didn't do that. Oh, that's still a learning process. <laughs> but <laughs> I had no idea how people even approached scoring a film. So I had to be self-organized. I figured out my own system of organization, which was really bad at first. And I felt I just had no sense of organizing all of the cues for a film. In fact, I didn't even know that they were called cues. <laughs> like I was, I was such an, such a noob. And so I made lists of like music here, music here, what it was going to be, but it was so disorganized. So I think organization is the key, definitely. And having seen and worked with other composers and see how they sort of structure, how they approach film scoring has really helped over the years. Yeah, that would have been the biggest learning curve that could have helped me right out of the gate, I'm sure. One thing that I found interesting in listening to some of your both solo music and scores is how, even though I think everything kind of lives on the darker side of music, I suppose. There's still a big variety in the actual style. So when you're approaching a project, then what's the thought process in what kind of musical genre or musical styling you're going to use in the approach? That's definitely a conversation with the director and production about what they have in mind. It's such a, it's such a major aesthetic for the film that it's a, like it's a collaborative effort between myself and the director or the creative team that, that's in charge of that department. For Vicious Fun, for example, immediately Cody absolutely knew what he was going for as he was making the film. He It was taking place in the 80s, it was going to be retro, it had to have comedic elements, but it had a lot of synth-driven elements and, uh, and guitar riffs, like 80s style, like Miami Vice kind of wailing guitar riffs and things like that. And uh, everything, the best of the 80s kind of combined into this score. So that was, yeah, very clear what, what that was going to be. With the retreat, they really wanted to have a lot of modern electronic elements that were disguised in orchestral elements. So it was a really nice combination of both uh, modern electronic and orchestral and uh, trying to keep it timeless and seamless. And we're not trying to throw anything back or be too synth driven or anything like that because we're in the woods and we really want that organic element. But it's a modern time and a modern couple, and we wanted to sort of put a piece of now in there. As far as the Oak Room was, it was like a northern gothic horror, so we definitely wanted to lean into the, uh, the orchestral kind of woodsy, wooden instruments, kind of frenetic and frayed palette. Like with the violin that Eugene Draw played, we had him playing it in a rather aggressive or anxious kind of way, a little fraught. And so that was sort of the direction for the score there and quite minimal, a very minimalist score. Interesting. So, I mean, Vicious Fun being much more synth-driven, you can really see the connection to your your earlier work and your solo work of just being an outgrowth of electronic broadly. But then with, with the Oak Room and the Retreat, both of those sound further away from 
from that earlier music of yours and, and your solo stuff now. When you're having those conversations or even when you're sitting down to write and compose, do you ever feel like, ooh, this is a little too far out of my comfort zone? Is there a, any desire to pull back or do you sit down and you go, hey, I got this? Yeah, I usually haven't. I got this. Uh, let me add it. If I don't know how to do it, I'll, I'm excited to learn how to do it. I think I might have a little bit of a, a short attention span anyway. So a, a new challenge is really exciting for me. The thing is, if I don't know how to do something, there are so many wonderful resources out there and people, if they're looking for a certain style with certain players, or I can work with someone who has a little more knowledge in the genre and like get up to speed as to what, what they're really looking for. I'm not afraid to just dive into the whole world <laughs> and, you know, really just surround myself in that for a bit and work with people who know it better than I. Absolutely. And so then working with them, is that strictly limited to kind of what you're talking about where you're looking for, for help and to figure it out? Or are there times where it's almost a co-composer relationship? I haven't really been in this position too much just yet, but it could be a co-composer working relationship if that's what the project calls for. If I know that I'm not a player or someone who plays in that style, it might be a collaboration with another composer, but I haven't been in this situation really. The only times I've I've worked with uh, someone else who had a co-composer credit would be uh, Eugene Draw, who played some violin over the Oak Room score. His top lines of those violin melodies were really, they were such a strong and important part of the score. So then what was the the relationship or the approach between you and Eugene? I mean, were you were you writing things and then he was kind of taking them and as he played them and noodled with them, like expanding on it? Yeah, exactly. So so I would have the cue, it was all there and all of the shape of the cue would be in place. And I knew where the the big moment had to be. And what he does is he comes in and he improvises on the violin over top of the cue that I've already written. And so because he's actually bringing his artistry to that and improvising, and I mean, we might have like 20 takes and I kind of, I'm stitching together a couple of takes and, and doing it that way, but he's really bringing like a, his brand of artistry to the track. So on those tracks that he's worked on, you know, you're getting your co-composer credit because that's, that is from within you. Like you really brought that well, that's really cool. And it, it makes a lot of sense. It's something that I've heard sometimes from a couple other composers where either it's something very instrument specific or especially when it's like a jazz or jazz related score and they've written something and then they're playing it with uh, like a jazz quartet and everyone's just riffing. And you know, when you've got four other folks that are like masters of the instrument, who knows what it can turn into? Yeah, Absolutely. So turning to Vicious Fun, which is something that I actually watched last night. First off, like, that was such a cool score. In one sense, like, I think it's hard to stand out now amongst, like, the 80s throwback synth stuff because it's gotten so popular. But I think, like, maybe five minutes into the film, there's just this really heavy banging synth track that comes in. And I was listening, I was like, yeah, this is f***ing cool. Cool, thanks. And then I was like, I was especially happy too, because about 20 minutes into the film, they're entering this Chinese restaurant and there's, I mean, this isn't the score, but there's a Drab Majesty playing in the background. And like, I'm a huge fan of them. I've seen them a couple of times live in Detroit. And like, so I saw that I was like, yeah, this is, this is sold me entirely. Where are you located? I'm currently in Chicago, but I'm, I'm from the Detroit region. 
I'm from Windsor, and I spent a lot of time in Detroit. That's actually funny because I've also spent a ton of time in Windsor too, both before I was 21 for obvious reasons, but then like afterwards as well. No kidding. We're we're in Detroit. Sorry, I know this is a side thing, but like where in <laughs> Detroit do you go? <laughs> I think like one of the places to go is L Club. I love that spot, partially because they get so many really cool acts across like a variety of genres. Like I've seen Drab Majesty there and a few other goth electronic bands, but then also I saw Power Trip there, which is a fairly big thrash band. The energy there is just amazing. I feel like I I don't know L Club. It's in Mexican Town. I'd recommend keeping your eye on what might be coming through there. Nice, nice. Oh, that's great. I haven't been back to Detroit in a long time. Wow, that's great. Detroit connects. Oh, the good old days. That's awesome. Not to stay on the tangent too long. Like Marble Bar is another really cool place. I don't even know where that is. That's like in the middle of a bunch of abandoned industrial buildings and you have this beautiful venue. I'm going to check it out. (laughs) All right, cool. Yeah, so going back to Vicious Fun, it totally sold me on the music. And when I was watching it, the thing that really popped into my mind is it's so easy to kind of fall into the genre trappings of that because it's been so well defined over the last eight, ten years now, and then 30 years ago, too. What was the approach to make something that's immediately recognizable and fits with that era without also just being like a copy of music that we've all heard before? Well, actually, the film had to sort of what the film was about and what it was saying had a lot to do with the influence of the sound. We knew we had to make it a comedy. So there was this built in approach to the score. It had to have a little wink in it, a little bit of humor, um, but you can't lean in too much or else you're telling everybody it's comedy. So when I was feeling around for synth sounds and little melodic lines and things, I was like always just kind of building in a bit of a wink, like a little fun in it, I guess, you know, and uh, I think that the sound really organically came to be just through that method, even in the serious moments, even when things were getting tense, like if we could always just have that little bit of fun with it, even during the action sequences or the killing, you know, things like that. That was just the general approach. And then, I mean, half of it too was like, does this sound cool? Does that sound cool to me? It just had to be cool and fun were the two kind of words that were always in the forefront of my mind. I mean, that makes sense because that's probably like literally how I would describe the really over tracks in it, at least. They're just like banging and heavy and a lot of, and they build up the tension and the pace and everything, but they're not just really dark and sober either. They're a lot of fun to listen to. Using Vicious Fun as an example, what's your process of starting to compose on a film for that do you have the, the script and ideas start building or do you come in when they've got like a rough cut and you're starting to work to picture? Yeah, well, Cody Callahan actually had a lot of temp music sort of placed within it. With all temp music, it's hard to get exactly right, but at least the where was correct, like where things were going to happen was already built in by the time I had the picture. So from then on, it was about finding the real temperature and tone of the humor. And there was a lot of experimentation. I ended up reading the script a few months before production. And we knew then what we were looking for, for like 80s throwback with that little bit of wink in it. But yeah, it wasn't until until there was an edit that we really started to build. Because 
with a film like that, it really does depend so much on the cinematography and the aesthetic because that really tells you how it's going to sound. Words are on a page for a kind of genre throwback like that. You can't really get too committed to score ideas until you start to see something. I think especially something that's going to have action sequences too. Like it's it's not like a, a super action heavy movie where there's all these big set pieces, but at the same time, there are action moments and like choreographed fights and things like that. And that's where I think it probably gets even harder to really imagine compared to like a dialogue heavy drama where the only thing you have to imagine is okay, what's like, what's the blocking of the scene actually look like, which might not inform the music quite as much. Right. Yeah, absolutely. This one was so stylistic that it was really informing the music. So it was important to see something before starting to write. And that was one too, where, because I, I really did enjoy the cues that are further up in the, in the sound mix, but it's also a score that at least hasn't been released yet. And I don't know if there are plans to, but First off, like how, you know, how much of the writing process also is you thinking forward to like, oh, this would actually also work as a track on its own released into the wild? A little bit of it. Yeah, there, there was always a thought of that. Like some of these can be tracks that can exist on their own, absolutely, as a release. However, there, there are some that you'd be surprised that some tracks in the score are not fully realized whole pop songs but rather 45 seconds long but it sounds like a pop track so in order to actually release it into the wild I'd have to build it out <laughs> and uh, and finish the song but in reality it sounds like a pop song but I only created exactly enough to fit the screen and there would be vocals on it and and whatnot like it would be a straight up pop track but what you hear is the the beginning and end of the song there is no more <laughs> So, like, I, I find that so interesting because so many times you get deluxe versions of score releases or expanded versions. You're both getting every cue that appears in the film, even if you hear it for five seconds or ones that are like a minute long. And it turns out that they're part of like the expanded version is like four minutes. So right. it's really interesting hearing that. No, that 45 seconds is just that 45 seconds. Yeah, like especially like the title card that after five minutes that bumps into the, the title. That is as long as that is. I think if there was ever, if there was a track that I would want to build out, it might be that one. Hmm. But that probably won't. It's probably only ever going to be that long <laughs> when, <laughs> when we do release the soundtrack. But yeah, like that was probably one of my favorite tracks, even though it's only a few seconds. But that's the thing, like as the viewer... We have no idea. It just like fits right in there. It's perfect. Um, what feels like an excerpt. And actually, it, it surprised me listening to your like watching that film and listening to the the score releases that you have up, and then hearing your other music and being like, oh, Steph does it all. Like she she sings, has a good voice too. So you have the ability at least to do everything. Yeah, I w I wish I could say there was a plan, and maybe that will change. Maybe that will change. It's all about time. Is there time before? the planned release to to get it there i don't have an answer for that <laughs> not say anything maybe <laughs> well i'll keep our ears out then it's always nice hearing music that you've enjoyed again without having to just watch the movie in its entirety again a lot of these films that you're working on are all horror or at least like horror adjacent stuff is that really just a big part of your collaboration with black fawn or is that also just the type of 
film that you particularly enjoy working in? It is the genre that I like to work in. Black Fawn definitely got me started in that direction, but I have worked with uh, like Click Productions was The Retreat and uh, Vortex was a perfect plan. And uh, I think Foresight was Creep Nation. So it's pretty fantastic that I'm I'm able to work in the genre that I really want to work in. I find horror and thriller, suspense, any kind of like darker gothic drama, things like that is really um, my comfort zone, definitely. And what is it about those that really draws you compared to a straight drama or like a rom-com or something? Well, straight drama is also like awesome, definitely. Um, but I'm not sure what lures me to the dark side. <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> I think those, I don't know, I think some of the sounds are just more exciting to me, I, I think. When I was a kid, for my eighth birthday, I went and saw Tim Burton's Batman. That may have had a big influence on me because I was pretty obsessed with the score. And Prince was all over the score. And I had, and it was um, Danny Elfman's score. And I played that tape until it wore out. That might have had a, an impact on me that I didn't realize until not so long ago. Besides Danny Elfman's score, were there other scores or films or composers that both built your interest in the film broadly, but then also either pushed your interest towards film music or like influenced you in your approaches to film music? Um, yeah, definitely. Johan Johansson was a big influence just from a atmospheric sound design perspective. I really, I think I really now more than ever am appreciating like sound design in score and when I hear that, that excites me and makes me want to dive a little deeper in that direction. Also, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. I love what they're, I just love it, everything that they do. It's so punchy and powerful and awesome ostinatos that build. And it's just like, I'm always inspired by their scores every time. I feel like they, they're always pushing the envelope for themselves and challenging themselves. And they're constantly accelerating. And, and it's just really wonderful to hear. Both. Johan and Reznor and Ross, like big fans of theirs. It's it always like breaks my heart a bit thinking of all of the great scores that Johansson was releasing, especially like the last few years of his life, and then you know, him passing away so young too. It's just such a shame because he was really brilliant. And like, and someone as a who's a metalhead as well, listening to score on Mandy, that one always gets me because it's like ah. Oh, it's just so heavy and crushing and it like feels so real. I feel the same way about that score. It's so raw, absolutely raw, heavy, crushing. Like it was so powerful. That's definitely one of my favorite Johan Johansson scores. You know, it's the same thing with Reznor and Ross. And I think part of it too, like you being a big Nine Inch Nails fan, it's just cool how you can hear the influences and like some of the little things that Trent Reznor used like 25 years ago appearing subtly here and there amid his scores while also like their sound has just gone in entirely different universes yeah yeah it's incredible sticking to kind of the genre stuff for another second are there any types of films that you haven't yet worked on or you know like talking about sound design and score are there types of scores that you'd want to be making as well that you just haven't had the opportunity to do yet yeah um i think i'd like to do a bit of an art score, something really out there. Maybe maybe it is a bit of a thriller, but maybe more of an art film thriller. I may actually have a chance to do something like that coming up, which I'm pretty excited about. And it, I can't, you know what, I can't talk about it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not allowed. Can't. That's all right. But uh, I, am, I would really like to, I have this 
urge to do something really off the cuff and really left field with a variety of styles within it and something just a little dangerous, totally experimental with many different approaches. I think that's maybe like in the world of like a neon demon or mm-hmm. or under the skin, any kind of very bizarre and wild approach. Even Uncut Gems, that's such a like wild score, but very experimental. So something something in that world, maybe even set like extremely sound design based, but then building it out into these wild motif or anything, anything kind of a little creative and totally different. So that's awesome. You're like totally speaking my language because I I love all those scores. I mean, especially Cliff Martinez's work just across the board. Oh my gosh. He's yes. yeah, he's so good. And then it's the same with Mika Levy. Like they just keep making really wild sounds that you listen to about 20 seconds and you go, I don't even I don't even know where this came from, but I can't wait to hear the rest of it. So I think that's so important in film music. There's still the place for orchestral work that's been going on since literally the start of film and the influences in film and all that. But at the same time, too, music's expanded so much, especially in the last couple of decades, that it's really great hearing more experimental scores and then hearing someone like you talking about how they want to do more experimentation in music. Yeah, absolutely. And even if I don't have a film project to do it on, I think I'll probably just still do it. (laughs) I'll probably, I don't know, but lately, now more than ever, I don't just, just this past year, maybe it's pandemic fatigue or something like that. But like, I've really kind of wanted to just do something a little outrageous in sound. And if there is no project to do it to, I may it's something that's so burning that I, I might do an EP or something like that, or just to try to get it out because it's, I feel like there's something right here underneath the surface. And I kind of want to bust out it and do it. Awesome. Well, you've got to keep me updated because I'd love to hear that. And that actually kind of segues into having the two identities almost of Steph Copeland, the film composer, and then Steph Copeland, the solo artist. In one sense, like what's the goal of the output of each of those identities? But then like, how do you draw a line between the two of them? I I actually find it hard to put out like original music as much as I'd like to, because I am sort of full-time scoring. And oftentimes if it's projects back to back or even overlapping and, you know, I'm not complaining about being busy, obviously, but the one way that I kind of am able to, you know, still put out my original music is sometimes that'll be a, a track that the film is in need of or something. And I'll, I'll maybe write something for that film, like for the Oak Room or for antisocial. That's one way that I can still sort of do my own thing, but be working at the same time. So that has really worked out. As far as a plan, like to continue as an artist and composer in both lanes, there isn't much of one other than I'm I'm just doing it because I want to do it. It's a way for me to break out of always thinking like a composer and start thinking creatively as a songwriter or producer and have fun. You have to get it out of yourself, right? And then I always find like after a songwriting or that I come back to composing fresh. I think they just play off each other and it's just really healthy creatively to do both. The one needs the other <laughs> in a way. I was going to say, it does sound like it can help, maybe not quite with writer's block. And I mean, maybe it does, but like also to just keep yourself fresh. And then like you said, just get things out of you that you need to get out. Do the two worlds ever inform or influence each other as well? 
All the time. Oh yeah, absolutely. When scoring, it's you're always learning, 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 and discovering new sounds. And I'll create something that may not be quite right for a score, and but it's what I want to do later for like an individual track, like a an original. So you know, you just start. I start a folder, and I'm dragging ideas and dropping them in. Yeah, there's always usable ideas on the desktop. <laughs> So it helps in that way. If it's not right for score, it's like maybe this is something that I want to use later on and come back to that sound or come back to that riff or whatnot. Interesting. You were talking about earlier just sometimes wanting to just release a single because you want to get something out. Release a track Gaslight about four, four and a half months ago. Was that something similar where you just had this this idea or this song and you wanted to do it? Or is it going to be part of something larger at some point? It's definitely a one-off. Actually, the way that song came to be was Bridget O'Regan, who played the fiddle on uh, the score for I'll Take Your Dead. We were wrapping up a recording and we knew we wanted to write an original together. This was the plan. We were like, we're just going to do this. We're going to go in and we're going to collaborate and it's going to be like a single or part of it. Originally, maybe it was going to be part of a larger project where we did a lot of tracks together, but times got busy and we ended up only doing the one. But it was her laying down those plucks and then we just built from there that was the foundation definitely of the song and we you know we had a a concept about gaslighting and even though we released it not so long ago it was the time when Donald Trump was in office and things felt a little out of control and everything felt so inflammatory and everything every statement was so anxiety inducing you know so it was it was a, a bit about that and just the general climate of like the news cycle at that time. But we were also talking about how gaslighting is like such a common thing that humans do. And you may not even be aware that it's being done to you or that you yourself are doing it. It's such a manipulative, sneaky little way of communicating to people to get what you want or to undermine people so that you're getting what you want, things like that. So it was just an important uh, topic that we wanted to talk about. And that melody that she came up with was just so perfect. It was such a sneaky, sneaky little song. I felt it totally embodied the theme of the, of the track. And it was just, it was a really good collab. Yeah, I was going to say like a sneaky, subtle melody is like too perfect for that. I also found it kind of interesting listening to it because in some ways it reminds me of songs like Fortunate Son or Born in the USA or something where you can very easily just like have it on and not really focus on the lyrics that much and totally miss the point like so many people do with some of those other songs as well or like rock in the free world people just listen to the chorus and then it's like that is the opposite of what the song's trying to tell you and very obviously telling you and it's the same thing i think with the lyrics too if you're not actually paying attention it just flies right over your head which is something that i i just always find really odd and interesting. Awesome. I actually did not know that about Rockin' the Free World, so I am going to listen to the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I have never listened to the verses. I only hear this like super positive Americana chorus, so yeah, I'm going to have a closer listen, definitely. Yeah, that's just, you know, the, the irony between the, the chorus and the lyrics. But the other side of it, too, is there was a video release for Gaslight, and in some ways... That's like the inverse of scoring for film or TV or something. The picture's there. The sound design is, you know, sometimes they're already the dialogue's there. And then you're putting music to fit all of that. And then for music video, it's like literally the opposite. So what was your involvement in 
the video itself. It's a very striking, interesting video that's like three and a half minutes of sort of an interpretive abstract dance amidst the quite empty streets of Toronto. Yeah. Well, actually, we knew that we wanted to have a dancer for the video. We actually had several different ideas for the video. It was very difficult because we had pandemic lockdown up here in Canada and everything was, well, I mean, it was everywhere, but it was always on again, off again, lockdown. And so it was getting a little difficult to plan anything. So we went back to the having a dancer idea. Actually, the director, Sean McLeod, sorry, let me, I'll start, I'll tell this story in order. (laughs) (laughs) We asked our friend, an amazing director, he's directed so many fantastic music videos for, oh my gosh, City and Color, Matthew Good. He's just one of the most creative, talented people. And so we played him the song and just kind of let him have carte blanche for what he wanted to do. And he said, it's going to be a dancer in the street and and at night. And we were like, perfect. It was our first idea. (laughs) So it was a super small shoot late at night. And he had hired Murphy, who's this incredible, amazing performer. And she's she's an actor, performer, stylist. She just really had she had the every factor that we were looking for um, to be able to portray like someone who's trying to go along and do their own thing, but has been told, uh, confused, gaslit, manipulated. So is having these moments of like, F you, I'm going to do what I want, but then insecurity, then panic, and even like cynicism, and maybe even like losing it a little bit. These are all like sort of the elements of the performance. It was Sean directing my fiance, cinematographer, Jeff Mahar, and Aldo Quervin, who is the AD. We had five people. And we were just running around the streets of Toronto late at night, trying not to get into any trouble or (laughs) play the music too loud. Yeah, it was just a quick, awesome shoot. And then Sean cut it together and made this amazing video out of a very, very minimal, but extremely talented team. I mean, obviously it turned out really well. So that's very impressive doing that quickly with a small crew while trying to avoid getting in trouble. We had playback. Actually, I was in charge of playback. I'm holding like this Bose speaker (laughs) for her to dance to in the nighttime streets. And uh, it's December, but luckily it was a mild night and we even had a wet down. It was really humid out. So like the streets were beautiful. That way the cinematography looked that much better because of the, it had just rained, but it was not uh, evaporating. It was just really nice. And uh, I'm just running around with this playback and everybody's like, oh, turn it down. No, you got to turn to <laughs> it get caught, you know, like, so yeah, sneaky, sneaking around for a sneaky song. Yeah, everything is like too literally perfect for it all. But all right, Steph, I think uh, I think we ought to uh, to wrap things up a bit now. I don't want to keep you all day, but I appreciate you so much for joining me. When you get a chance, when the borders open up, make sure you go to Detroit, check out Marble Bar and Elk Club and keep me up to date with your experimental stuff or sound designing stuff, whether it comes from a score or an EP or something, because I'd love to take a listen to it. I absolutely will. And uh, I'm going to try to build out those vicious fun tracks because it <laughs> might be a good idea. It might be worth it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you.